Yesterday, I read from uh, Sutta 34 a little bit, these lists of dhammas from Venerable Sariputta, and it's really referring to Sutta 33 so many times, I thought, well, it's, it's also, that one's also a good one to, to read. And uh, a lot of these lists of dhammas on this uh, Sutta 33 in the Digha Nikaya, so I'll back up and actually read from that. And I think it's a little bit more comprehensible and uh, easier to listen to than Sutta 34, the Sankiti Sutta, the chanting together. So I'll read from that for, I won't read the whole sutta, but I'll read through it. And um, there might be actually lists of dhammas that anyone here might might be more interested in looking into or asking about. And I really do think it's good to know a lot of these lists. So one of the reasons this sutta came about, or the reason it came about, was the Nigata Nataputta had just passed away. And it was uh, Venerable Sariputta saying, we need to, we need to look into these uh, we need to be reminded of these sets of dhammas so our community doesn't be divided and we can all be on the same page. So, uh, thus have I heard. Once the Lord was touring in the Mala country with a large company of about 500 monks. Arrived at Pava, the Mala's capital, he stayed in the mango grove of Chunda the smith. Now at that time, a new meeting hall of the Malas of Pava called Ubataka had recently been built, and it had not yet been occupied by any ascetic or Brahmin, or indeed by any human being. Hearing that the Lord was staying in Chunda's mango grove, the Malas of Pava went to see him. Having saluted him, they sat down to one side and said, Lord, the Malas of Pava have recently erected a new meeting hall called Ubataka, and it has not been occupied yet by any ascetic or Brahmin or indeed by any human being. May the blessed Lord be the first to use it. Should he do so, that would be for the lasting good and happiness of the malas of Pava. And the Lord consented by silence. Noting his assent, the malas rose, saluted him, passed out to his right, and went to the meeting hall. They spread mats all round, arranged seats, put out a water pot and an oil lamp, and then, returning to the Lord, saluted him, sat down to one side, and reported that what they had done, saying, Whenever the blessed Lord is ready. Then the Lord dressed, took his robe and bowl, and went to the meeting hall with his monks. There he washed his feet, entered the hall, and sat down against the central pillar facing east. The monks, having washed their feet, entered the hall and sat down along the western wall facing east with the Lord in front of them. The Pava Malas washed their feet, entered the hall, and sat down along the eastern wall facing west with the Lord in front of them. Then the Lord spoke to the Malas on Dhamma till far into the night, instructing, inspiring, firing, delighting them. <coughs> then he dismissed them, saying, Vasetas, the night has passed away. Now do as you think fit. Very good, Lord, replied the Malas. And they got up, saluted the Lord, and went out, passing him by on the right. As soon as the Malas had gone, the Lord, surveying the monks sitting silently all about, said to the venerable Sariputta, The monks are free from sloth and torpor, Sariputta. You think of a discourse on Dhamma to give to them. My back aches, I want to stretch it. Very good, Lord, replied, replied Sariputta. Then the Lord, having folded his robe in four, lay down on his right side in the lion posture, with one foot on the other, 
mindful and clearly aware, and bearing in mind the time to arise. Now at that time the Niganta Nataputa had just died at Pava, and at his death the Nigantas were split into two parties, quarreling and disputing. You would have thought they were bent on killing each other. Even the white-robed lay followers were disgusted when they saw that their doctrine and discipline was so ill-proclaimed, <clears throat> having been proclaimed by one not fully enlightened, and now with its support gone, without an arbiter. And the Venerable Sariputta addressed the monks, referring to this situation, and said, So ill-proclaimed was their teaching and discipline, so unedifyingly displayed, and so ineffectual in calming the passions, having been proclaimed by one who was not fully enlightened. But friends, this Dhamma has been well proclaimed by the Lord, the fully enlightened one. And so we should all recite it together without disagreement, so that this holy life may be enduring and established for a long time, thus to be for the welfare and happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit, welfare, and happiness of devas and humans. And what is this Dhamma that has been well proclaimed by the Lord? There is one thing that was perfectly proclaimed by the Lord who knows and sees, the fully enlightened Buddha. So we should all recite together for the benefit, welfare, and happiness of devas and humans. What is this one thing? All beings are maintained by nutriment. And another one thing, all beings are maintained by conditions, sankhara. There are sets of two things that were perfectly proclaimed by the Lord. Which are they? Mind and body, ignorance and craving for existence, belief in continued existence and belief in non-existence, lack of moral shame and lack of moral dread. That's ahiri, anotapa, and then moral shame and moral dread, hiri otapa. Roughness and bad friendship, <clears throat> gentleness and good friendship, Skill in knowing offenses and the procedure for rehabilitation from offenses. Skill in entering and returning from meditative absorptions. Skill in knowing the 18 elements and in paying attention to them. Skill in knowing the 12 sense spheres and dependent origination. Skill in knowing what are causes and what are not. Straightforwardness and modesty. Patience and gentleness. Kanti Soracha, gentle speech and politeness, non-harming and purity, lack of mindfulness and lack of clear awareness, mindfulness and clear awareness, unguarded sense doors and non-restraint in eating, guarded sense doors and restraint in eating, powers of reflection and mental development, powers of mindfulness and concentration, calm and insight, the sign of calm and grasping the sign, exertion and non-distraction, attainment of morality and right view, failure of morality and wrong view, purity of morality and view, purity of view and the effort to attain it, being moved to a sense of urgency by what should move one and the systematic effort of one so moved, not being content with wholesome acts and not shrinking from exertion. That means uh, not being content with wholesome acts is uh, not just resting content with whatever level one has gotten to, but actually continuing to develop. Knowledge and liberation. 
knowledge of the destruction of the defilements and of their non-recurrence. These are sets of two things that were perfectly proclaimed by the Lord, so we should all recite them together. There are sets of three things, which are they? Three unwholesome roots, greed, hatred, delusion. Three wholesome roots, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Three kinds of wrong conduct, body, speech, and thought, or body, speech, and mind. Three kinds of right conduct by body, speech, and mind. Three kinds of unwholesome thought, thoughts of sensuality, of enmity, of cruelty. Three kinds of wholesome thought, of renunciation, of non-enmity, of non-cruelty. Three kinds of unwholesome motivations, sankapa, through sensuality, enmity, cruelty. Three kinds of wholesome motivation, through renunciation, non-enmity, and non-cruelty. Three kinds of unwholesome perception, of sensuality, enmity, of cruelty. Three kinds of wholesome perception, of renunciation, of non-enmity, of non-cruelty. Three unwholesome elements, sensuality, enmity, cruelty. Three wholesome elements, renunciation, non-enmity, non-cruelty. Three more elements, the element of sense desire, the element of form, the formless element. Three more elements, the element of form, the formless element, the element of cessation. Three more elements, <clears throat> the low element, the middling element, the sublime element. Three kinds of craving, sensual craving, craving for becoming, craving for annihilation. Three more kinds of craving, craving for the world of sense desire, for the world of form, and for the formless world. Three more kinds of craving, for the world of form, for the formless world, and craving for cessation. Three fetters of personality belief, attachment to rites and rituals, and doubt. That's Sakaya Ditti, Silapata Paramasa, and Vichikicha. Three corruptions of sense desire, of becoming, and of ignorance. Kamasava, Bhavasava, Avijasava. Three kinds of becoming in the world of sense desire, of form in the formless world. Three quests for sense desires, for becoming, for the holy life. Three forms of conceit. I am better than, I am equal to, I am worse than. Three times, past, future, present. The three ends, personality, its arising and its cessation. Three feelings, pleasant, painful, neither pleasant nor painful. Three kinds of suffering, as pain, as inherent in formations, as due to change. That's dukkha dukkata, sankhara dukkata, and viparinama dukkata. Three accumulations, evil with fixed result, good with fixed result, and indeterminate. Three obscurations, one hesitates, vacillates, is undecided, is unsettled about the past, future, the present. Three things a Tathagata has no need to guard against. A Tathagata is perfectly pure in bodily conduct, in speech, and in thought. There is no misdeed of body, speech, or thought which he must conceal, lest anyone should get to hear about it. Three obstacles, lust, hatred, delusion. Three fires, the 
fires of lust, hatred, delusion. Three more fires, these are wholesome fires, the fire of those to be revered, of the householder, of those worthy of offerings. Threefold classification of matter, visible and resisting, invisible and resisting, invisible and unresisting. And those are uh, apparently some sort of classification of subtle matter. Three kinds of karmic formations, meritorious, demeritorious, and imperturbable. And there's a note on the imperturbable. This refers to rebirth in the formless world, the imperturbable. Three persons, the learner, the non-learner, the one who is neither. Three elders, an elder by birth, an elder in Dhamma, an elder by convention. Three grounds based on merit, that of giving, of morality, of meditation. Three grounds for reproof, based on what is seen, heard, or suspected. Three kinds of rebirth in the realm of sense desire. There are beings who desire what presents itself to them and are in the grip of that desire, such as human beings, some devas, and some states of woe. There are beings who desire what they have created, such as the devas who rejoice in their own creation. There are beings who rejoice in the creations of others, such as the devas having power over other crea others' creations. Three happy rebirths. There are beings who, having continually produced happiness now, dwell in happiness, such as the devas of the Brahma group. There are beings who are overflowing with happiness, drenched with it, full of it, immersed in it, so that they occasionally exclaim, oh, what bliss, such as the radiant devas, the abhasara devas. There are beings immersed in happiness who, supremely blissful, experience only perfect happiness, such as the lustrous devas, the supakina. Three kinds of wisdom, of the learner, of the non-learner, of one who is neither. Three more kinds of wisdom, based on thought, on learning, on mental development. Three armaments, one, what one has learned, detachment, and wisdom. These are, or the three weapons, the weapons of learning, the weapon of detachment, the weapon of wisdom. Three faculties, of knowing that one will know the unknown, of highest knowledge of the one who knows. Three eyes, the flesh eye, the divine eye, and the eye of wisdom. Three kinds of training in higher morality, higher concentration, or higher mind, and higher wisdom. Three kinds of development of the emotions, of mind, of wisdom. Three kinds of unsurpassables, of unsurpassable vision, unsurpassable practice, unsurpassable liberation. Three kinds of concentration, with thinking and pondering, with pondering, without thinking, with neither. Three more kinds of concentration on emptiness, the signless, the desireless. Three purities of body, speech, and mind. Three qualities of the sage as to body, speech, and mind. Three skills in going forward, in going down, in means to progress. Three intoxications with health, with youth, with life. Three predominant influences, oneself, the world, the Dhamma. Three topics of discussion. Talk may be of the past, that's how it used to be. Of the future, that's how it will be. Of the present, that's how it is now. 
three knowledges of one's past lives, of the decease and rebirth of beings, of the destruction of the corruptions, three abidings, Deva abiding, Brahma abiding, the Aryan abiding, three miracles of psychic power, of telepathy, of instruction. These are the sets of three things, so we should all recite together for the benefit, welfare, and happiness of devas and humans. There's these uh, pr three predominant influences, oneself, the world, the Dhamma, that's atta-dipateyang, loka-dipateyang, dhamma-dipateyang, and that's, uh, Lumpur Liam likes to reference that, that uh, atta-dipataya is the, uh, taking oneself as the reference in terms of uh, um, what, what can I get for myself and uh, or through uh, whatever actions I do, it's to build myself up. Loka dipateyang, that's more like taking the society or taking the surrounding society or a group or the uh, external world, trying to be of benefit to the world. Dhamma dipateya is taking the Dhamma as this central theme and trying to act perfectly in accordance with Dhamma. So those, uh, I'll stop there with that and go into um, being Dhamma, Lumpurcha, and he may refer to, he, may, he sometimes ends up referring to some of these lists, but it's more in a way that's applicable, very practical. This is the chapter, Understanding Dhamma, the Here and Now Dhamma. We practice Dhamma because we see the value of noble treasure, the wealth that is within. We have attachment to material wealth, but now we try to exchange it for inner wealth. This kind of wealth will be free from the dangers of the elements, such as flood and fire, as well as that of thieves. It is something that they cannot find. No external threats can touch this happiness of mind. This is what the Buddha meant when he spoke about merit. Making offerings is one source of such happiness because we are overcoming the tendencies toward greed and miserliness. Whatever Dhamma practice we are doing, whether it is giving, keeping moral precepts, or meditating on loving kindness toward all beings, the Lord Buddha has taught so that they should all come to a single point, the pursuit of peace. So, Pachupana Dhamma, the here and now truth, is something extremely important. We practice various activities we call Dhamma, such as making offerings to support the Buddhist religion, but we should know just what this is. Merely seeking merits may not bring us to the Buddha Sasana, the true dispensation of the Buddha. We need to distinguish between merit and skillfulness. Merit on its own is lacking in wisdom, and without wisdom, we will never be free of suffering. Merit without skillfulness is like carrying something and not being able to put it down. It ultimately gets heavy enough to crush us. Skillfulness knows when to let go, Together they support the Buddha Sasana. We listen to Dhamma to increase our skillfulness and happiness, and then to reflect on these things to create benefit for ourselves and others. We learn to let go because holding on to things leads only to suffering. Dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of life, is not the way it has to be. But do you know the causes? Suffering is in the present. We don't have to look to the past. Dhammas all come from a cause. They don't just mysteriously float up into existence. 
Nothing in this world can make people suffer but a lack of knowledge. Is a boulder heavy? If we just walk by it, where is the heaviness? But if we try to lift it, that's another story. So birth, youth, aging, poverty, riches, and so forth are all suffering if we don't know them. The Buddha said that we should know dukkha and the other noble truths, the cause, cessation, and path. If we do know, there's nothing to suffer over. Some people say that suffering is a fixed part of the mind, that it has been there forever. I was talking to someone about this just today. I tried to explain that suffering is not intrinsic to the mind. It arises in the present moment. You have a mood of aversion in the mind and you experience suffering now. Think about a lemon. If you leave it alone, is it sour? Where is the sourness then? It's when the lemon contacts the tongue that sourness occurs. If you aren't experiencing it, it's as if it isn't there. When there is contact with the tongue, it arises at that moment. And from there arise like, dislike and afflictions. These afflictions are not intrinsic to the mind, but are momentary arisings. When the mind has attained peace, that is the end of the path. This is the goal the Buddha wished everyone to realize. But before we reach the end, we need to know how to practice in order to attain a peaceful mind. Our minds are not peaceful because they have not realized the genuine Dhamma. The mind is still unskilled and unreliable, lacking the wisdom that knows things as they are, that sees the truth of all phenomena, or sabhava dhamma, natural conditions. Sabhava means existing like that, existing just as it is. Whether or not a Buddha appears in the world, phenomena exist as they are. They do not change into some other mode of existence. We are taught to begin with right understanding. Then there are right thought, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. We say there are eight, but they are really factors of the one path upon which each individual must travel. When understanding is correct, thinking will be correct, and so will speech and all the other factors. When the mind is established in what is correct, the entire progression of the path must be correct. Nothing will be wrong, and walking the path will lead to peace. The Buddha taught about letting go. When there is pleasurable experience, he said to recognize that it is merely pleasure. When there is painful experience, he said to recognize that it is merely pain. There is no one experiencing pleasure or pain, happiness or suffering. These things appear as a result of previous causes, but when we are practicing correctly, we won't find any owner of them. The Buddha taught us to see that it is merely happiness, merely suffering, not a self, a being, a person, or an individual entity. This is right view. There is no self or owner of these conditions. We think in terms of my leg, my arm, my friends. Thus we see self. But according to Dhamma, this is not seeing self. Understanding that these are not self is seeing self. You see it, but don't carry it. If you see a snake, but don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison doesn't get you. So the Buddha said to see self. This is difficult to hear and understand. The world has its conventions. The teachings of the world, when they reach the mind of the Buddha, are all false. 
The teachings of the enlightened ones when they reach the minds of worldly beings are false. When people feel they are the owners of good and bad experience or that these things happen to themselves, they are at the mercy of impermanence because all things are subject to change. Being attached to them can only produce experience that is unsatisfactory. You are sometimes pleased and sometimes upset as things come and go and keep changing. There is turmoil because wrong view has invaded your mind and given you mistaken ideas. You end up carrying happiness and suffering, and they get heavy for you. If there is right view, then feeling is merely feeling. Pleasure is merely pleasure. Pain is merely pain. There is no owner of either pleasure or pain. The Buddha wanted us to contemplate in this way. If we contemplate for some time, there comes about the quality of the Dhamma that calls the mind to look and see what is going on. What exactly is this happiness we experience? What is this suffering we have? Are they something stable or permanent? Or how exactly are they? We are certainly able to look at things we've experienced before. Happiness we've had, did it end? Have we ever had unhappiness? Did it last forever? When we come to know about phenomena and don't get so involved with them, the mind becomes peaceful because we are no longer trying to own anything. But still we can enjoy our lives and make use of things in this world. The household items we have, kitchen goods, furniture, and so on, are not really ours. We use them, but it is in order to gain realization that they are not ours. We can use them freely and comfortably without having to suffer over them. We use them with a knowledge that is comprehensive and transcends ordinary ways. If we cannot be above all these things, we are under them, carrying them with the attachment that says, this is mine, bearing their weight. This wrong view can only lead to suffering because things will never work out exactly as we desire. Why do things break? Because they exist. Seeing things as already broken, you don't need to cry if they break. If the cup is not mine, then without this involvement, whether it breaks or not, there is no problem. You have things in your house, so you'd better think about this. Still, you have to teach your kids to take care of things. If you just say, it's not ours, you'll end up with no plates to eat off of. If you speak in one way but see in another way, if you use adult concepts for children, no one cleans the dishes. Living in the world, there will always be things we must do but we do them with letting go and the mind is peaceful without distress so we can work at ease. This is right livelihood. Even if we have hard, grueling work, it's okay. The Buddha wants us to escape from birth, but we want birth. What are we going to get? We don't see the liability yet. We still don't see the way the Buddha sees. His teaching talked of the conceit that says, I am better than others. I am equal to others. I am worse than others. If we think in any of these ways, it is not accurate. If we don't have this conceit, there's no obstruction. People want happiness, riches, and so forth. They are attached to merit, only wanting tangible benefits, but not making real spiritual progress. In arithmetic, there are adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing, but we only want addition and multiplication. This is just self-cherishing. People will practice their meritorious activities, but still experience sickness and other problems, and they begin to wonder, why does this happen? Where is the merit? But that isn't the point of merit and virtue. You don't seek merit to cause a cat to become a dog. It isn't something to change the nature of sankhara. 
They are by nature unreliable. Whatever happens, you needn't get overly concerned or upset. What we call skillfulness or wholesomeness is translated in our language as cleverness, a circumspect quality with which we can live our lives in the world. It is necessary to have merit and skillful means working together. Merit is like raw meat, which will go bad after a while. Wisdom is the salt that preserves it. Or you can put it in the refrigerator. It is said there is no light, no light like wisdom, no river like tanha or craving. So the Buddha advised, in acting, eating, and seeing, don't let them become tanha. Live in the world, but know the world clearly, not letting the heart become flooded by craving. That is, keep letting go. The Buddha's teaching is for the purpose of helping every being to escape from the cycle of samsara. But we who have such coarse defilements of mind and feeble wisdom have different ideas. When we hear the Dhamma that says nothing is ours, we become afraid that we won't get anything. It just makes us uncomfortable. Actually, we can say that these are ourselves and things are ours, but that is only a conventional reality. It is not on the level of liberation. We need to learn about the way we use conventions in all aspects of our lives. For example, our names. When we were born, we didn't bring a name with us. After we came into this world, we were given a name. There wasn't any old name to be replaced. It was empty there. In the space that is empty, you can put anything. People are born empty like this, and a name is put on them, a designation for this existence. So we can call the person John or Mary or whatever, and they come to be so according to conventional understanding. They are not really John or Mary. They are a supposed John or Mary, not an ultimate true John or Mary. Really, there is no one there, just natural conditions. But if we want John to come, we have to say, John. If we want to call Mary, we have to use the name she was given. It is a convenience for communicating and functioning in this world. That's all. Having been born, things pass away. Having passed away, things are born again. Birth and passing away, all conditions are like this. When we look clearly, we will come to realize that what the Buddha taught is the truth. When we see the reality of this, it is not something that will bring suffering or impoverish us. Seeing that there is no self and that nothing belongs to us will make us much more comfortable than before. We will be able to use things at ease and live in the world at ease. Some people will think about this and lose the desire to do anything. They think that since you can't get anything that will be theirs, what's the use? Actually, it is those who relate to things as their own and work in order to get things for themselves who suffer so greatly. It's better if we can do work for the sake of doing it, all the while realizing that there's no self involved and nothing belonging to us and training our minds to let go. Working and performing actions, we will, we will also be letting go and giving up in accordance with the truth. This is called right view or right understanding. We know conventional reality as conventional reality and see how things appear to be and how we designate them as being such and such. The Buddha said that all these designations are empty. When he was teaching the Brahmin Mogaraja, he said, Mogaraja, you should view this world as empty. These words can cause an ordinary person to lose heart. Seeing this world as empty, the Lord of Death will not be able to follow you. He will not see you, the Buddha taught his disciples in this way.
Saying that this world is empty might give us the idea that there is nothing in the world. When we look at a bowl or a spittoon, these things do, do exist. It is not that they don't exist, but they exist in the sphere of emptiness. They exist, but are empty. We can call something a spittoon as a convention that we create through our designation. Or we can use another convention and call it a pot. Actually, it is empty of these names from its own side. But we view it in a certain way and then have attachment to seeing it as such. There might be two people, one a clever sort, the other kind of foolish. The latter goes to the market and buys something. He doesn't really know what it is. He has unwittingly bought a chamber pot. He takes it home and uses it as a serving bowl for his rice and feels that it does the job pretty well. He doesn't know what others use it for. Then the clever guy comes along and sees this. He is startled and wonders what is going on. What is this person doing? It's repulsive, using a chamber pot to serve rice. So one is called foolish, the other smart. Why is the latter disgusted? The pot is new. It's never been used as a chamber pot. It's clean, so why should anyone be disgusted by this? It is only attachment to an idea, and this attachment brings about revulsion and anger. Hey, look at this idiot. He's using a chamber pot to serve rice. Out of these two people, which one is actually the fool? The chamber pot is not really anything in itself. An ordinary pot is not really anything. We designate something as a chamber pot, and then if someone uses it to serve rice or soup or curry, others will feel that it is a disgusting thing to do. What is the meaning of these negative feelings? It's only because of attachment to the designation, to the convention that says, this is a chamber pot. It's not really a chamber pot in any absolute and unalterable way. It just depends on our perceptions and how we wish to use it. If it's clean, we can use it for a lot of different purposes. If we understand the truth like this, there isn't really anything to get worked up over. We are not the owners of anything. We can use serving dishes, chamber pots, and ordinary pots without any problem. These things don't name themselves. We could call them a number of things. Whatever convention will work fine. So it is said that our speech should be one thing, but the mind another. If others are calling something a spittoon, we can do that also. If they, call it, if they call something a chamber pot, we can do that too. It means adjusting ourselves to speak in accordance with the world, matching ourselves to the ways of this world in which we live. The Buddha and his disciples lived with society at large. They lived together with every kind of person, good and bad, wise and foolish. They were able to fit in anywhere because they understood the facts of conventional reality and ultimate reality. When you have this understanding, the mind is comfortable at peace. There will be no attachment or clinging. That is the natural result of right view. You know what is convention, what is liberation, and the mind is free of disturbance, letting go of things. I'll leave that there for today. Any questions or comments? So we get many examples of uh, how to practice. You know, what is right view, what is you know, right mindfulness, but uh, I, I feel that in my case, and perhaps other people too, you know, we are mostly following the, you could say, the ignoble, eightfold path. So we, you know, following the opposite uh, path factors. So you know, to me, it helps to to hear sometimes examples of these wrong path factors, and in particular, you know, I'm thinking about wrong effort. So what would 
qualify as a, or examples of wrong effort, like spending all this energy but on the wrong thing. So if you know any of you would like to talk about that. Wrong effort, wrong part, do you have any ideas? Well, I mean, it's, again, it's, you, you want to measure things through, through, the, through the result uh, in the sense that, because the whole purpose of right effort is to bring one to a place of well-being, of clarity, of peace. And uh, when we expend energy in a way that, that is, is just kind of stirring us up, making us agitated, making us miserable, um, then there's a clue that that okay this is this is wrong effort, and uh, it's it's you can't be sh too sure um, by the uh, um, the actual mode of effort that we that we do. You know, just you know, how much do we? How much should I sit? How much should I walk? Should I walk slow? Should I walk fast? Should I, should I do mindfulness of breathing? Should I do, uh, should I do contemplation of the thirty-two parts? All of those are objects of the effort, and it's it. We have to be paying attention to the, to, say, to the result, and and recognizing how how is this facilitating more mindfulness? Is it facilitating more? Clarity is a facilitating more well-being and peace. So then we we can get a get a sense of of that, and, and then you know is because something can make us happy, um, but it's also we have to say is it say sustainable? Is it praised by the wise? Because uh, so you can put a lot of effort into you know it's like eating something <laughs> and. And that will make you happy for a little while, but uh, you know it's not not that sustainable. Or, or uh, uh, you know, on a certain level, it, it it sort of builds up habits that are that are un, unskillful. Uh, so uh, there's a certain sense of the immediate result or benefit, and but then also the over time, um, what's the what are the the qualities that we are are fostering and, and developing uh, so that the both of those need to be need to be reflected on that taught Pachubana Dhamma I can remember being in the Dhamma hall at at, at what Nombapol when Lopancha gave that talk mm. and being incredibly inspired when I heard it mm. and I actually when Paul was 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 looking for material to to translate. I said, "You've got to translate that talk." Mm. <clears throat> yeah, to be able to talk about conventions like that, because uh, sometimes I think uh, <coughs> maybe especially in those days, the Westerners first going to practice there have yeah. this kind of, uh, I guess, a cultural arrogance. Like, well, we, yeah, why are they? Why are these Asian people so attached to their conventions and yeah. and uh, you know, Lumpur Cha being able to, well, this is, you know, we follow these things. We, it was actually a step higher than that. Like, yeah. we know yeah. about that, but we follow conventions out of respect. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, it's like, I, I think you told a story of uh, one of the monks going up to give a, one of the Western monks, 
as a junior monk going up to give a talk and putting his sandals on his head. Yes, yes. And like the lay people just thinking, uh, yeah, we get it, but why it's do you have to do that? It's, it's really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so if you're constantly letting go and showing restraint, I feel that definitely there is a reduction of suffering, but I also think as you get more and more advanced, there is some sense of peace that comes in. But if you're not at that level, if you're just, you know, kind of starting out and, and seeing this reduction of peace, but there's a reduction of suffering, but there's no sense of peace there yet. So in the beginning stages, how do you keep going through <laughs> this constant process of letting go and showing restraint when there's a lot of discontentedness that comes up from it and you're, you know, letting go, but there's no, like, good thing that can keep, you know, give you motivation. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's actually uh, one of the, say, aspects of, of uh, the, uh, uh, in terms of training and um, it's a quality of faith actually in sort of uh, by drawing close to uh, good teachers and and uh, other people who are practicing uh, you get a feel for the the results even though sometimes yeah we're not quite we're not there yet but we can see that okay other people have have, have benefited from this path and the path is exactly the same so it gives us the confidence that okay, I can, I can stick with this because yeah, it's true when we're, when we're first practicing, we're, there there are certain elements that we do have to take on faith, uh, and that there actually are results to this, uh, this this training and and uh, and, and yeah, because put, putting forth effort or or restraining oneself is. You know, it doesn't come so naturally at the beginning, and uh, but then as you, you, you have that sort of confidence that, that you know, it makes sense, um, and then you see the results in, in others around one, or seeing, hearing, listening to teaching, seeing, seeing people who are embody the the, the fruits of the practice. Then it gives one that confidence. Okay, I gotta, I, I gotta stick with. It. Uh, certainly, for, for in my my case, that was uh, seeing the the uh, the example of Ajahn Chah, and then the senior senior monks around him, and feeling that, yeah, I I, I want to be like that. I'm, you know, I've been. I've seen the examples of other ways of living, and it's not so inspiring. So how does it come about that we um, you know, begin to <coughs> abandon uh, fixed fixed views? You know, like we have these like fixed, entrenched views that things should be like this, yeah. things should be like that, people should do this, people should do that. And uh, sometimes, you know, we don't even notice them. They're so, you know, deep. And uh, how do we, you know, begin to 
loosen the grip on those things and let them go? Well, a lot of it is 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 by reflection and, uh, and paying attention to the to the results of those views because it's sort of like or and sometimes like 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 by by investigation and questioning, you know, what am I assuming here with this view, you know, like. The world should be the way that I want it, so I can be happy. You know, you take that logical extension, and you realize, well, that's absurd. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I've, I, you know, I can't. If I hold to this view, I'm, I'm just going to be frustrated all the time. Uh, so that that uh, uh, articulating. Because Some, sometimes view, views are, are, are oftentimes not articulated very clearly. So sometimes we have to investigate. You really try to articulate. Because the, the views are sort of based on some particular desire or attachment or some kind of conditioned uh, assumption. Uh, and so then, so it's important to to be said, well, what, what, what is the conditioning process? So that, that kind of investigation uh, is really helpful for uncovering, oh, what's the, oh, seeing the underlying view that one is kind of holding or supporting or assuming. Uh, and then that's, one can start letting go. Okay, it's just past nine, so we can continue with our morning meditation session. <laughs> 